from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA, a look back at 2017. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. There is no doubt, as we look back at 2017, the biggest story of the year was Russia's meddling in the U.S. election. And we'll cover that extensively in this podcast. Also on the list of top stories was the attacks on U.S. diplomats in Cuba, North Korea's rapid and dangerous missile and nuclear program development, and of course the many terror attacks in Europe and right here in the U.S. And we start with a string of attacks in the U.K. On Monday night, May 22nd, this is what happened at Manchester Arena in the U.K. in the words of British Prime Minister Theresa May. At 10.33 last night, the police were called to reports of an explosion at Manchester Arena in Manchester city centre near Victoria train station. We now know that a single terrorist detonated his improvised explosive device near one of the exits of the venue, deliberately choosing the time and place to cause maximum carnage and to kill and injure indiscriminately. The explosion coincided with the conclusion of a pop concert, which was attended by many young families and groups of children. All acts of terrorism are cowardly attacks on innocent people, but this attack stands out for its appalling, sickening cowardice, deliberately targeting innocent, defenseless children and young people who should have been enjoying one of the most memorable nights of their lives. As things stand, I can tell you that in addition to the attacker, 22 people have died and 59 people have been injured. Those who were injured are being treated in eight different hospitals across Greater Manchester. Many are being treated for life-threatening conditions. And we know that among those killed and injured were many children and young people. We struggle to comprehend the warped and twisted mind that sees a room packed with young children not as a scene to cherish, but as an opportunity for carnage. But we can continue to resolve to thwart such attacks in future, to take on and defeat the ideology that often fuels this violence, and if there turn out to be others responsible for this attack, to seek them out and bring them to justice. As this podcast was being produced, late in the afternoon on May 24th, here's where it stood. I think it's very clear that this is a network that we are investigating and as I've said it continues at a pace, Uh, there's extensive investigations going on uh, and activity taking place across Greater Manchester as we speak. That's Ian Hopkins, Chief Constable of the Greater Manchester Police. Authorities in the UK had been expecting something but they didn't know what or when. 
And interestingly, Sir Julian King, Commissioner for the Security Union from the EU, said these words. We uh, have suffered a series of, of horrible attacks over the last two years or so across, across Europe uh, at the hands of uh, terrorists uh, inspired by Daesh, uh, ISIS, uh, who are targeting not one country or another country. Uh, they are targeting uh, our way of life mm -hmm. uh, and our values, and they're trying to uh, generate um, and disrupt relationships across communities, across the European Union. Uh, there's, no one, there's no one way they do that. Uh, so we've seen quite sophisticated attacks uh, directed, sometimes staffed from um, Iraq and Syria with people who've, who've been fighting there, coming back to Europe and in an organized way trying to do a, a big attack like the attack in, in Paris. On Sunday, June 3rd, Britain was rocked by another terror attack, this time on its iconic London Bridge. A vehicle mowed down people as they walked along the bridge about 10 o'clock p.m. It was sheer panic, as one might expect. A mobile phone caller on the BBC explained what happened. Yes, hello. Um, I'm currently on uh, London Bridge at the moment. I'm uh, on the right-hand side, facing away from the shard. Um, about 10 minutes or so ago, a white van driver um, came speeding, probably about 50 miles an hour, veered off the road into the crowds of people that were walking, uh, pedestrians walking along the pavement. Um, he swerved right round me and then hit uh, about five or six people. Uh, he hit about two people in front of me and then three behind. Um, I'd say there's at least four uh, severely injured people. Uh, they all have paramedics assisting them at the moment. Um, there's about 20 armed police on the bridge at the moment. Uh, I'm unaware as where the van driver has gone now. It was a white transit van with one solo male driver. Um, the, uh, one of the victims uh, was a French lady. After the vehicle attack, three men got out and ran to nearby restaurants and began stabbing people. This was the scene outside of a restaurant in the borough market as police tried to persuade scared patrons to make a run for it instead of hiding there. Are you hitting I, me home? Right. Are you hitting me home? If you get me home safe, I'll like follow you. I, otherwise, I'm going to say, we go out outside and we go outside. We're all alone. Do you know no police mean? officers. All of guys, you, do you guys, know what guys, Let's do what I'm saying, all right? Let's do what I'm saying, all right? All right, wait, maybe it helps if we understand. We are chasing suspects around London who want to kill people. They are going into... Hang on! They are going into buildings looking for people, okay? You are all clumped together in a place with no exit route, okay? You are victims waiting to happen. All right. Get your stuff and get out of the danger zone. All right, all right. Now. Just give me one minute. I leave in there. Just give me one minute. No, no. I'm not going to take you home. I'm going to take you out of the danger area. Okay, you are in the danger area. You personally will be Guys, 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 guys. Guys. Guys, why don't we just trust? Why don't we just wait? Guys, wait, wait, wait. We can, we can take, we can take you home. I can take you home. All right. 
I can I can take you home. I get out. I'm not going to walk you to your door. I'll so get you out of this Let, Guys, 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 let's just trust. Let's just... Guys, let's just trust that they're doing the safest thing for us, all right? And later, police caught up with the attacker. What is he shooting? I'm trying to keep myself safe. That attack, which dominated the headlines, was not the only one of the day. There were five others in India, Iraq, Algeria, Afghanistan, and Mexico. Another 24 people died. But the attack in London got a lot of attention because of the symbolism of the bridge and because of the many promises that the Islamic State organization had made about attacking London. Nikita Malik, a senior research fellow with the Henry Jackson Society in London, spoke with me about the impact of the attack, both from a symbolic perspective and on an emotional level. It was an ex extremely um, stressful and uh, a very difficult time uh, for this to have happened in London, particularly after uh, so closely after the attack in Westminster. One thing that was troubling was the scale of the attack that three individuals were involved and they used the same methods uh, as the person in Westminster, the use of a van plus um, knives, which were very easily available. And, and as the news was coming through to us, one of the things uh, we noticed was was the methods and, and also the fact that not just Islamic State, but also terrorist organizations such as Al-Qaeda have actively called out for these groups, uh, for extremist groups um, to, to use whatever whatever means are available to them to attack during the holy month of Ramadan. So because as this is the month of Ramadan, the attacks are escalating, but we never thought that um, these attacks would occur in such quick succession. And I don't think that the the, uh, the government and intelligence services thought that either, as, as very recently the threat level was reduced in the UK because a number of uh, very important arrests were made. But we're beginning to see that that simply the scale of this uh, problem is huge. You have not um, thousands, but tens of thousands, 20,000 people uh, on, on a list at the moment um, who, are, who are potential uh, radicals, violent radicals. So um, my, my first reaction to this was one one of, um, um, you know, mm -hmm. extreme shock, but uh, that it had happened so quickly. You're listening to Target USA. The National Security Podcast. A look back at 2017. One of the biggest stories in the U.S. from a security point of view was the Halloween attack in New York. It's happened again. A terror attack in New York City. This time, Halloween, October 31st, 2017. That's right, 3.05 p.m., a male driving a rented Home Depot pickup truck entered the West Side Highway bicycle path at Houston Street, began driving southbound, striking a number of pedestrians and bicyclists along the route. At Chambers Street, the truck collided with a school bus, injuring two adults and two children. After the collision, the driver of the truck, a 29-year-old male, exited the vehicle brandishing two handguns. A uniformed police officer assigned to the first precinct confronted the subject and shot him in the abdomen. The subject was wounded and transported to a local hospital. A paintball gun and a pellet gun were recovered at the scene. The subject's identity is not being released at this time, pending further investigation. At this point, there are eight fatalities reported in connection with this incident. In addition, several people have been injured 
And Commissioner New York Mark City Police Commissioner James O'Neill shortly after the attack took place. A 29-year-old Uzbek man living in the U.S. with a green card rents a truck and takes it to New York City, drives down a bike path mowing down people, jumps out of the truck after it collides with a school bus with fake guns waiting to be killed by police. Authorities say it was a classic case of ISIS-inspired terrorism. You're listening to Target USA. The National Security Podcast. A look back at 2017. No matter where you are in the world, terrorism or the threat of it is probably a reality. Unfortunately, as of today, November 1st, 2017, more than 1,000 terror attacks have taken place this year. More than 6,000 people have been killed. Many, many more have suffered injuries. There are five basic types of terrorism. State-sponsored terrorism, which consists of terrorist acts on a state or government by another state or government. Dissent terrorism, which are terrorist groups that have rebelled against their own government. There are terrorists from the left and the right, which are groups rooted in political ideology. There's criminal terrorism, which are terrorist acts used to aid in crime and criminal profit. And the most well-known one, religious terrorism, which are terrorist groups that are extremely religiously motivated. From amongst that large group have risen several subgroups bent on making statements through terrorism. Among them, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Our guest today has spent a significant amount of time in the shadows fighting against them, primarily because he's Muslim and he despises what they stand for. His name, Tamar al-Nuri. At least, that's the name he uses. It's a pseudonym because he's an undercover Muslim FBI agent and he just wrote a book called American Radical. He joins us and his voice was disguised for obvious reasons on this program to tell us his story. And his is a really intriguing account. Let me just begin by asking the question why you wrote the book. Well, first off, JJ, uh, one of my international terrorism cases was declassified for trial. Um, so this gives me uh, an opportunity to be a voice for those that don't have one. As you are aware, I offer a unique perspective on a socially relevant topic that's talked about a lot but often misunderstood. It's a rare window, uh, a first of its kind, and I'm very proud of that, into a world that most Americans know very little about. There's been thousands of books about undercover work. There's been thousands of books about terrorism, but there hasn't been one yet about combining the two, undercover national security cases, because Americans need to understand that the brave men and women of the FBI are combating terrorism every day around them to keep our country safe. I hope to honor them uh, with this book. I've been talking to other colleagues of yours for years about the tough road to staying ahead of terrorism. And we're here in Washington. It's very clear that there is a very big concern. I've heard that a lot of the chatter that they hear from inside terror groups mentions the interest, need, and almost the obsession with attacking the nation's capital. Is that what you have heard? Well, here's what terrorists are looking for, uh, specifically uh, with al-Qaeda and ISIS. In my opinion, and as you know, I'm not speaking for the FBI or any other 
law enforcement or intelligence agency. But in my opinion, from my personal experience, they're looking for maximum casualties and maximum exposure for them and minimum exposure for their operatives. They've taken a turn since 9-11. They don't want to lose their operatives anymore, but they want their attacks to be uh, monumental and covered by the media, and it has to make a statement. That was Tamar El-Nuri, a Muslim undercover FBI agent who's infiltrated ISIS and Al-Qaeda. His very vivid story can be heard in its entirety in Target USA episode 89. After the break, we'll take a look back at our top story of the year when we return to Target USA. The National Security Podcast. You're listening to Target USA, the national security podcast, a look back at 2017. I'm J.J. Green. The U.S. intelligence community has concluded Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered operatives to interfere in the U.S. 2016 presidential election. A Target USA investigation that began in November of 2016 examined how the attack happened, when it started, who was involved, and what lay ahead. We conducted dozens of interviews in the U.S. and abroad with current and former U.S. intelligence officials, members of Congress, cybersecurity, and intelligence experts, foreign government officials, Russian nationals, and American victims. This is part one of our series, Anatomy of a Russian Attack on the U.S. At about 8.30 a.m. on September 11, 2014, the Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness in St. Mary Parish, Louisiana, began getting phone calls from concerned citizens about a disturbing message they'd received. Well, we started getting phone calls in regards to a message that came out. It says, toxic fumes hazard warning in this area and it gives the time 1:30 p.m. Duval Arthur Jr. is director of the Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness and he was on duty at the time and recalls the message that came in take shelter check local media and, and then it has the name of a company Columbia Chemical Company alerts, C-O-L-U-M-B-I-A chemical.com. That's the, the name that was on the alert. Where did you get the message? Where did that alert come from? Oh, it didn't come to us, but we, we started getting it from residents that live in the uh, an area of the parish that's not too far away from the plant. So they saw, and, they saw this online or on their phones or? On their phones. They, these were text messages. And uh, it was sent from a telephone number, which I'll give you, 646-586-5960. That was the telephone number of the text. And it went out to several people. We had phone calls from people while we were making phone calls, so we really didn't get a chance to get everybody's name. We do have the name of a couple people that 
mm-hmm. that we were able to get the screenshots from, mm-hmm. and they called in complaints. What did they say? Just said that what should they do? Is this legitimate? By that time, the internet was blowing up with details about the alert. On Twitter, a screenshot was circulated of the New Orleans Times Picayune website which depicted an article about the explosion. At one point, an image of CNN's website turned up on Twitter with a photograph of the explosion. A Wikipedia user created a page describing the explosion. A public Facebook page titled Louisiana News posted an article describing the event. Even a video appeared on YouTube that appeared to be news footage of ISIS claiming responsibility for the attack. All of this was taking place while near panic started to set in in St. Mary Parish and all up and down the east coast of the U.S. And while it was happening, Duval Arthur got on the phone and he called Columbia Chemicals to ask what was going on and they sent him a statement. September 11, 2014. It says, we have been informed by the community that a text message has been received by several individuals indicating a release of toxic gas from the Birla, it's B-I-R-L-A, Birla Carbons Colombian Chemicals, and it's Colombian instead of Columbia, okay? Mm-hmm. Columbia, Colombian Chemicals Plant near Centerville, Louisiana. The content, as stated by the text, is not true. There has been no release of such toxic gas, explosion, or any other incident at our facility. We are not aware of the origin of this text message. Law enforcement authorities have been contacted and are following up on this matter. And that is when the real panic began to set in. The realization that all of it had been a hoax of epic proportions. The spoofed websites, the faked screenshots of CNN and other newspapers and broadcasters, even the video showing a man watching TV, all of it was elaborately staged and executed. Then, the question was, who did it? We asked Duval Arthur that question. So, when did you find out what was behind the hoax? Who was behind the hoax? Well, I've never found out who was behind it. I was told that it was the Russians, but I have no I I have no information on that, none whatsoever. Did, did you see the story that Adrian Chen wrote in the New York Times, where you were quoted? I I, I heard about it. I uh, I never saw it, but I assure you that I don't know that the Russians or anybody else did this. Okay. Okay. I, I couldn't tell you. We spoke to the FBI in Louisiana about it as well. We were told they'd get back to us. So far, we haven't heard anything yet. As we dug further into the story, we learned that wasn't the only Russian attempt to manipulate the news in the U.S. In late 2014 and throughout 2015, we watched active measures on nearly any disaffected U.S. audience, whether it be claims of the U.S. military declaring martial law during the Jade Helm exercise, chaos amongst Black Lives Matter's protests, or a standoff at the Bundy Bundy Ranch, Russia's state-sponsored outlets of RT and Sputnik News characterized as white outlets, churned out manipulated truths, false news stories, and conspiracies. Clint Watts, a former FBI special agent, currently a fellow 
at the Center for Cyber and Homeland Security at the George Washington University. He told the Senate Intelligence Committee on March 30, 2017, Russia was very much involved in manipulating the news for their own special purposes, and he talked specifically about how they did it. They generally lined up under four themes. One, political messages designed to tarnish democratic leaders and institutions. Two, financial propaganda created to weaken confidence in financial markets and capitalist economies. Three, social unrest crafted to amplify divisions amongst democratic populaces. And four, global calamity pushed to incite fear of global demise such as nuclear war or catastrophic climate change. So what's at play here is a very sophisticated, coordinated operation to attack the U.S. from inside out in plain sight, without us knowing what was happening. Watts told the Senate how it unfolded from his vantage point. From these overt Russian propaganda outlets, a wide range of English-speaking conspiratorial websites, which we refer to as gray outlets, some of which mysteriously operate from Eastern Europe and are curiously led by pro-Russian editors of unknown financing, sensationalize these conspiracies and fake news published by white outlets. American-looking social media accounts, the hecklers, honeypots, and hackers I described earlier, working alongside automated bots, further amplify this Russian propaganda amongst unwitting Westerners. It's November 13th, 2016. I'm in Sofia, Bulgaria, for NATO's Concept Development and Experimentation Conference. One of the critical pieces of information I've learned from a source here at the conference is that next door in Macedonia, there are no less than 140 English language fake news outlets. So, questions. Why would there, first of all, be a need to be any fake news outlets there? Second of all, why that many? Thirdly, why English language? Fourth, who was running them? And fifth, how were they being run? All of those questions I've been looking into seem to point to Russian influence operations targeting America. Back to Washington, March 30th, 2017. Clint Watts seems to have the answers in his testimony. Through the end of 2015 and start of 2016, the Russian influence system began pushing themes and messages seeking to influence the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. Russia's overt media outlets and covert trolls sought to sideline opponents on both sides of the political spectrum with adversarial views towards the Kremlin. They were in full swing during both the Republican and Democratic primary season and may have helped sink the hopes of candidates more hostile to Russian interests long before the field narrowed. Senator Rubio, in my opinion, you anecdotally suffered from these efforts. Florida Senator Marco Rubio, who's on the Senate Intelligence Committee and was indeed present at that hearing after Watts' remarks explained what he was talking about. In July of 2016, uh, shortly after I announced that I would seek re-election to the United States Senate, former members of my presidential campaign team uh, who had access to the internal information of my presidential campaign were targeted by IP addresses uh, with an unknown location within Russia. That effort was unsuccessful. I'd also informed the committee that within the last 24 hours, uh, at 10.45 a.m. yesterday, uh, a second attempt was made uh, again, against former members of my presidential campaign team who had access to our internal information, again targeted from an IP address from an unknown location in Russia, and that effort was also unsuccessful. That was part one of Target USA episode 83. That episode was the beginning of a four-part podcast series called 
Anatomy of a Russian Attack. You can hear the other episodes of this series and all of our Target USA podcast at Podcast One, iTunes, and WTOP.com. I'm JJ Green. I hope 2017 was a prosperous and productive year for you. It certainly was for us. Thanks to you, we've now had more than a half million downloads. So from all of us at Target USA, thank you. And have a great 2018. And keep listening for more new intriguing episodes of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hi, this is Ben Dominich, the host of the Federalist Radio Hour. We're a daily show coming to you five days a week from Washington, D.C., where we interview our nation's top journalists, politicians, authors, chefs, economists, entertainers, and more. If you're looking for a contrarian discussion on news, politics, or culture, give us a listen and subscribe at podcastone.com, the new Podcast One app, or at Apple Podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.